Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. to the Simply Silly, it must be another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio by the film guys. Film guy number one is the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers for 20 years and counting. Boy, <laughs> making me feel really old, man. Friend to all the big stars and friend of ours. He's Jay Todd Anderson. Jay Todd, welcome. Film guy number two is the nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress, our man at the Library of Congress, and our friend, he's George Willem. And George, welcome. You know that music at the beginning is sort of the soundtrack of my life. (laughs) (laughs) From ominous to sublime. That's right. And that music was from the perfect movie. Sullivan's Travels by the one and only. Preston Sturgis. Written and directed by. This is a very big deal this movie is. Had a lot of effect on a lot of people, released in 1941. This movie ends up being a movie about a movie and contains the title of a movie that you, J. Todd Anderson, yourself, storyboarded for the Coen Brothers. Yeah, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's where the uh, the boys got their idea for this for their movie was... They decided they're not going to do it in this movie. So the, well, the Coen brothers decide they're going to make it because it didn't get made in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I think I think on this program we're, we're not going to just talk about the film because the, the film itself is this amazing, beautiful, uh, life affirming movie, and I had forgotten how really, really so, incredible it is until I got to watch it again before we did this. Uh, we also want to talk about Preston Sturgis, um, who was kind of an anomaly in Hollywood and, and a, a very fascinating person. I mean, his life is like one of his own movies. But this is a perfect movie. It is definitely a perfect there movie. Is a, the list of rules are, gentlemen. Well, Sullivan's Travels creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, Sullivan's Travels retains its meaning and entertainment value. And Sullivan's Travels will never be placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. It is perfect in its own scale. George, if you could just give us, uh, it, this, is, this is one of those interesting beasts that is about a movie within a movie. The movie itself is about the making of movies, and uh, and therein it gets a little bit convoluted at some yeah, point. Yeah, well, the, the great thing about it, well, let me just tell you about this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sullivan's Travels, the Sullivan is John L. Sullivan, played by Joel McRae, who is this very popular film director in Hollywood. Uh, he's been very successful. He's made these these wacky comedies and musicals like Hey Hey and the Hayloft and So Long Sarong <laughs> and Ants in Your Plants of 1938. But he's he's become very jaded about this, and he wants to do a film about real life, and he wants to do a film about the little man, the downtrodden, the people who've been destroyed by the depression. Because this is you know the the depression was coming to an end now, but there were still a lot of people out there tromping the tracks and and living out of cardboard boxes. And um, the film he wants to make is Oh Brother Where Art Thou is the title of it. And at the beginning of the film, he is there with his studio bosses. They're trying to convince him not to do it, but he wants to do it. 
And as a matter of fact, we have just a little bit of how he's sort of coming to this notion. He doesn't want any more fluff. He wants to make this meaningful, He's socially... had enough of the comfortable <laughs> life, and he's driven and with a lot of conviction here. Right. And we have a little bit of the clip of him talking to the studio bosses. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little sex in it. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? And shortly after this, the studio execs tell him why. He's not even capable of doing that. Yeah, the studio execs ask him, you know, well, how have you suffered? And it's like he hasn't. He's gone to boarding school. And you know school, what I think is life. still very valid today. People in Hollywood still behave like this. Bodies piling <laughs> up in the streets. It's always something they create that's it's just a terrible world out there. And, of course, they're in the most comfortable environment in the world. But they've somehow come to this reasoning that they need to change the, world with the, to the, change the whole world. They're going to do this. And it always happens from Hollywood for some reason. <laughs> the epicenter of all so social anyway, change. They, they can't convince Sully otherwise, so he does. He dons Tramp's clothing, and he heads out on the road, and within a little short time, he finds himself back in Hollywood uh, on the back of a truck. And so he tries again. Every time he goes out, and he, he keeps ending up back in Hollywood. Along the way, he meets this young girl who's come to Hollywood, uh, played by the luscious Veronica Lake mm-hmm. with her peekaboo curls. And uh, they kind of strike up a friendship, and they go off on the adventure together. And, of course, as they go along, uh, things go wrong, and he ends up back, back in, Hollywood in Hollywood and sick again. But he's always working with a net. Yeah. He's always got the security. Like, even when he comes back to Hollywood, he goes, well, I'll take care of that for you. Uh, don't worry. I'm who. Are you really him? And he has the security of knowing who he is. Well, even on the first time out, he had the uh, the uh, mobile uh, land yacht following <laughs> well, land him. Following. <laughs> With all, all his people in it. And he takes her to his place. And it's it's palatial, you know. And yeah. then they go back out. And then they finally get tired of trying to save the world. Yeah, they finally, at one night, they are rummaging through garbage cans for food. And they both look at each other. And they go racing off. And the next thing they are, they're back in Hollywood <laughs> in his home having a yeah. really nice lunch. But Beautiful his conviction still sticks. So he's got this idea. He's got this great He's idea. got this coda that he's going to, like... Move right back into his old life, but he's going to make a difference by by going back out one last time with a huge stack of five dollar bills and hand them out to all the people on the street to thank them for all the research material he's given them. So this he does. He goes out and you see him hand out five dollar. And bills. he had a bit of a fever. He was he was not well when he was doing this, so he was kind of like doing right. it with a sort of a glossed over sort of you know. But one of the one of the tramps that he hands a five dollar bill to sees what he's doing and gets up and follows him down to the railroad yard, whacks him over the head with a board, throws him on a, on a, uh, a freight car, and steals all his money and takes off. And that man is killed in one of the worst pieces of process you will ever see <laughs> on the motion picture screen. But you just don't care because it is at this point in the movie where I like to say it gets better. And by the way, um, I noticed, uh, Paul McGannett, that often they're showing the shoes of the people as they're walking. Right. Shoes play a very big part in this movie because what has happened is to protect Sully while he's out, they have sewn a Director's Guild card in the sole of each one of his shoes. And this is what happens when the guy gets killed by the train. The tramp that gets killed happens to have been a tramp who stole his shoes 
earlier. So they have this mangled body in the morgue they cannot identify. No DNA back in 1941. Right? They tear open one of the shoes and they find his guild card. So now they realize that Sullivan is dead. Now he's working without a net. He has no identity to fall back on. And that's when all of a sudden the tone in this picture takes an abrupt change, and only a man like Preston Sturgis can get away with this stuff. Yeah, th- this is one of the most amazing things about this film, is that, you know, the first two-thirds movie are like goofy, slapstick, drop-your-pants comedy. I mean, it's like, you know, they're throwing food, and people are yeah. falling down, and which is always a big Preston Sturgis thing. of you know, Slide people, whistles. People w- well-dressed falling down. <laughs> but at this point in the movie, it goes 180 degrees to this dark, uh, incredibly dramatic, no no laughs whatsoever scene. Sullivan wakes up and he's got a bump on his head and he finds himself in a train yard, I think in Kansas City, where he is confronted by a railroad bull, a railroad cop. Who uh, who insults him and totally out of his character for Sullivan, he picks up a rock and bashes this guy in the face. Ends up in court, ends up sentenced to six years hard labor, hard labor. on the, in the swamp gangs. And he keeps telling him he's a film director and everybody laughs. Yeah, and it, then it becomes like Cool Hand Lou. Yes, basically, he ends yeah. up in the swamps working under this absolutely dictatorial little man who who wants to be called Mister. <laughs> And, uh, and he is befriended by this little, little squirty little guy played by, by Jimmy Connolly, who um, – It's a great character. And most, in a lot of movies, um, George has been very careful to point out that – and I agree with him. One of the things that makes the protagonist move is he always has this conscience with him, which is usually an older person or old mm-hmm. man, a follower figure. Um, and that's what makes that character work because he has this camaraderie with – this yeah. older person, like an it's older, very, and, and back in the forties and fifties, this is what was what drove a lot of those characters. It's in something movies. that Walter Brennan kind of got. Yeah, I don't know, you know if he created it, but one of the greatest proponents of this this style of character driven cinema was Frank Capra. Yeah. All of his great films, his protagonist always has this American kind of life a funny Gary Cooper, angel. Jimmy Stewart. They yeah, they always have pals. like this little guy, this little kind of funny guy who who's their conscience, who sits with them and says, "Wow, well, you know, you really ought to do this, bud." We that, actually have yeah, we have the clip uh, of the conscious guy here and they're, they're, they're speaking and suddenly Sullivan figures out actually the method by which he's going to get out of this swamp mm-hmm. don't you understand I think I'm dead but I'm not dead well that's fine just think what a nice surprise they'll have when you get out I haven't time to spend six years but you were sentenced I know that but I still haven't time well you'll have to find the time Look, they don't sentence picture directors to a place like this for a little disagreement with a yard bull. Don't they? No. Oh, well, maybe you ain't a picture director. Huh? Maybe that idea just come to you when you got hit on the head. Maybe. Now, look. Uh, We used to have a fellow here once that thought he was Lindbergh. He used to fly away every night. But he was always back in the morning. Well, don't I look like a picture director? Of course, I've never seen one. To me, you look yeah, kind of more like a, a soda jerk. <laughs> and it's just after that that somehow he figures out how it is he's going to get out. Right. And at this point, I just want to add a bit of a spoiler alert because we are going to have to give away the ending on this. Oh Sorry, boy, folks. here it comes. Here it comes. So anyways, uh, as this thing is wrapping up, this, this little plan that Sullivan comes up with is if he can get his picture in the paper, they will realize that he's not dead. So he admits... 
that he is the one who killed John Sullivan. You know, he killed, killed himself. himself, right? So they have all these pictures in the paper. Veronica Lake, who now has become a starlet at the movie studio, sort of a, as a reward for all the time she's she's hung out with Sully, sees his picture, takes it to his people. They are overjoyed. Sullivan's uh, ex-wife is just aghast because now she's married his business manager and is going to lose all the money she's been getting off of him in alimony. And, and he's Sullivan. decided not to do Oh Brother Where Art Thou. That's right. <laughs> they all go, Oh, it's so great you're back. Oh Brother Where Art that's gonna be great. Yes. No, I'm not gonna do it. And the great thing and the thing that you know actually brought tears to my eyes at the end of this film is the idea laughter is for some people it's all they've got to keep them going. He really goes out of his way to show you this in a in a scene where they're all the prisoners have come to this black church. Mm-hmm. And they're going to show a movie for the prisoners. And they watch this Walt Disney movie, uh, a cartoon. uh, Mickey Mouse Pluto uh, Pluto, and he watches Pluto getting his paws and flypaper. And if you watch that carefully, you'll notice that Sullivan is watching himself. Yeah. Pluto is Sullivan <laughs> getting, getting his hands caught in the flypaper because he always ends up back to Hollywood and you know he's in the drawers and he gets his butt cracked in the drawers you know whacked and, and that is Sullivan's life and then when he comes to the realization that he is a pretty hilarious character right um, as we're reminded <laughs> quite a bit sometimes then he can progress forward with his career as being a, a great motion picture director right we're talking about Sullivan's travels the 1941 Preston Sturgis film on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. And the laughter part that he experiences there at the at the Baptist church in the in the de- depth of the swamp, the laughter that is a huge turning point for him. He realizes that the only time these inmates, the only time he's seen them laugh since he arrived was here, and there was something pure about that joy, and it ends up defining and redefining. He has to ask his buddy to uh, reinforce the fact that it's funny. At the time that this film came out, you know, the war clouds were looming over Europe. We were still coming out of a depression, and people were nervous. People were scared. Right from the first frame of this film, there is an introduction. The film is dedicated to all the clowns and buffoons who have made us laugh. Well, my guess is after the war, if they would have made this movie, they wouldn't have used the dialogue bodies that are piling up in the streets because it was true. Mm. So the context of this movie is very, very pre-war. And what was going on at this time in motion picture industry in the United States is that they had kind of grown up from silence. And they were well into talkies. And nobody was ever even thinking about doing a silent ever again. Not for any reason. Like nowadays, anybody says, well, let's do a silent. Hey, that sounds like fun. But back then, it's an industry. You know, we're not going to... we're progressing and they're grown-ups now they're writing they're writing very good now this is one of the best examples of great dialogue because that's what Preston Sturgis was all about just right. magnificent dialogue and and a lot of actors commented on how really great he was and he saw that with the use of dialogue he could control a lot of things he has made quite a few comments that with just some great dialogue he could save a picture and that's what he was good at and one of the th- reasons he got so famous is because he did a play that was well-written, and then that catapulted him. And then he started challenging studios with power. Uh, and, and the studio people that ran the industry, which was very much like a General Motors or something, could not compete with a guy who was making a lot of money for them. And he, he knew the technique of making money was like writing his pictures. So he started controlling all aspects. And this is an error of John Huston, William Wyler, Billy Wilder, all these guys were out-of-control directors in Hollywood who knew how to manipulate a motion picture through really good, sharp dialogue. And this became a range war of sorts. And nowadays, they can stop a whole industry. 
if they thought they were out of control back in the 40s, now they had things called writer strikes. Uh. You know, and that's what changed the industry for good, whether anybody likes it. The last two years has changed the industry. Yeah, I mean, there used to be the old joke of the, you heard about the blonde actress who went to Hollywood and slept with a writer. <laughs> Sturgis was something of an unlikely groundbreaking director because he had such a short actual period of productivity and he was a also yeah a master of, of all young. trades. He wrote songs. He'd done plays. He was in the restaurant industry, so he had so he developed non-smudge lipstick. He had a pretty <laughs> active mind. What brought him to prominence was his ability to write motion pictures, and then he got a break as a director. As with everything else, he kind of forced his break. He had written this. I think it was The Great McGinty. I believe Paramount wanted the script. And he said he would sell them the script for a buck if they would let him direct it. And somebody saw a good deal there, so they, they did it. And it was a gangbuster. And then he is referred to as a hot. He was a hot performer. He burned bright very shortly, like yeah. maybe six pictures at the most. You go from the penthouse to the outhouse really quick <laughs> in Hollywood. Yeah, his, his his career was fast and furious and was over almost immediately. And there's just, you know, a small range of pictures. I think they said he even made even fewer films than Orson Welles. The one thing that people, when they see Preston Sturgis and all these great directors and they think about how they were against the system and everything – as I pointed out before on these shows, is what you have to realize in the business, that it is a business. And the minute you start going over schedule, if you're assigned four pages a day and you do one setup, it costs money to make these movies. And people are taking a risk on you. For instance, when he got with Howard Hughes, he went like 30-some days over schedule. That's a lot of money on right, a movie. Right, and we didn't even talk about this strange pairing early so you on. You can really was... say, oh, poor Preston, but you got to remember, these things are made with this magic emollient called money. It's not an art. You know, the art comes from the success of making a lot of money from the pictures, you know. And that's what will sustain him forever is his success, but... Going 30 days over schedule is it's not going to take too long for somebody to come out of the woodwork at a studio and really crack your butt. I think he became he, – he started believing his press a little too much. And, I mean, his real downfall was a film called Mad Wednesday where he came up with this great idea of doing a sequel to the Harold Lloyd film The Freshman, which ends with this really great football game. And the film actually starts out – with that football game from the freshman, and then goes years ahead to show what happened to this character. And Seems the film like an interesting idea. Is a, it was an interesting idea, but it just didn't work. And you know, he fiddled and fiddled and fummaged around with this for a few years. They tried a couple of name changes, and the film just flopped. And you know, and Lloyd himself, Lloyd. I mean, he got Harold Lloyd to come out of retirement to be in this film. It just didn't work. It has all the. I mean, it has all the trappings of a of a. Um, of a Sturgis film. It's got all the the, the funky names and the goofy uh, sidekicks. I mean, little Jimmy Conley, who's in uh, this film, is also in there. Uh, but again, I think his, his real, the real mistake he made was trying to top The Freshman, which, even though it was a silent film, was probably fresh enough in most people's minds that they would remember how great The Freshman was. And this was long before people did such things as sequels, right. or at least not on any kind of regular basis. And this film wasn't The Freshman. Yeah. And he, you know, um, J. Todd, when we're thinking about the effect, for example, just the, that Preston Sturgis had on the Cohen brothers. Now, other oh, than got, the you, writing, you know what I, I I must and I'm I'm really embarrassed to admit this that all through college I never paid hardly any attention to Preston Sturgis, and when I met the brothers on Raising Arizona, I became aware of how much influence he had on them in Raising Arizona and the business because. 
those guys really, really modeled a lot of things after Preston Sturgis. They're writers first, and they power on through with their writing, and they have a lot of control. Joe and Ethan have a lot of control, but they weren't as hot. You know, Preston Sturgis is a very hot kind of performer, and that's why he kind of burned out. But when I got into the business, then I became really aware of how, how much influence Preston Sturgis has had on modern audiences. Um, and, and I didn't realize it until that time. When I watch these things, I see a lot of stuff now. I understand now. So the Coen brothers maybe appreciated his approach, but were themselves able to do it with a, a more measured hand, not quite well, You could hear burning. it, especially going back to Raising Arizona, you could hear it in some of the little, the little offside exchanges, which are just... Uh, the one that always sticks in my mind is when um, crooks are in the store picking up stuff, and and the one sees the balloons and he goes, "Oh, do these balloons blow up in funny shapes." And the old guy goes, "Well, no, less round is funny, you know." And it's just that's a sort of a Sturgis kind of thing. Yeah, you can really hear cuff. like something on Preston Sturgis doing that. Yeah. But one of the interesting things I, I'd like to mention here about this film that really struck me watching this is these great dialogue scenes. They're just packed with dialogue. The dialogue is fast. You can understand every word, uh, and they're very funny, but all the really big dialogue scenes in this movie are done in one unbroken take. You know, the scene starts, they do the dialogue, the scene ends, and there are no cuts. And it's especially evident in the opening one we heard a little piece from where he's talking with the studio heads about, about O Brother Where Art Thou. And I, I, I watched it a couple times and realized this goes on and on and on for like six minutes. There are no breaks. There's even a section where Joel McRae walks out of the focus range slightly and is kind of blurred and then comes right back in and it's like Sturgis was so happy with the performance he used it even though the photography was slightly imperfect at that point the context of its time is really apparent because they do a lot of name dropping they say Lubish Capra yeah which was a great friend of Preston Sturgis this is at Paramount at the time and also a person coming up at Paramount at that time was Billy Wilder who had the same kind of control because of all the money his pictures it's like the bigger the picture the harder you're going to fall if you Mm -hmm. fail you're the one who told me you're only as good as your last picture you know the uh, actress uh, Veronica Lake in here was pretty amazing in her time and then she faded very quickly she died she, at she age burned, 53. Yeah, she burned out Aww. almost faster than Sturgis did. She was kind of a created Hollywood emblem, you know, with the, the peekaboo curls. And, and during the <laughs> war, they made a big deal about showing the soldiers that she was cutting her peekaboo hair cut off because it would get entangled in machinery, <laughs> you know, right. in the, making aircraft parts. There was a great so they show them yeah. giving her a barber cut, you know. There's so. a great photograph, which I believe was in Life magazine, showing her working a drill press with her <laughs> hair all tangled up in it and her doing this great face. And yeah, the, the problem was that a lot of the women working in the war plants were copying her hairstyle and their hair was getting oh, caught in the machinery. Oh, no. So, so, yeah, so that was a, a, like a public service that she did yes. to cut her hair. Yeah. She flamed out. I mean, you look at her her list of works. It kind of ends around forty nine, and then there's a little bit of TV work, she and then back, there's something in the sixties, and there's was it Flesh Feast? Flesh Feast was her last hurrah. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I was having uh, a lunch with someone who uh, one time when they were young, they were in New York. And they were at a restaurant, and this woman was waiting on him, and he suddenly realized that she looked familiar and noticed her name tag was Veronica. And he said, excuse me, are you Veronica Lake? And it was. It was Veronica this Lake. Was a long she time was waiting ago. tables <laughs> at a restaurant. And, however, Joel McRae had a very, very 
lucrative oh, co- career. He went on and on and on. Not a lot of people talk about him these days, but he was a very strong leading he man. He was a great stalwart. He looks very young in this film, but he'd already been in pictures for over 10 years by the time he made Sullivan's Travels, and he went on to like 76. He's one of those classic guys when you hear him being interviewed, he sounds like the character that he is in a movie. Yeah. You know, he just he plays is that because he's a method actor or he always I know, plays I think that he's character? Always like, he's like Gary Cooper. He always plays Joel McCray. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Sullivan's Travels, the 1941 Preston story. Sturgis film on 91.3 WYSO, Filmically Perfect. This film had a lot of impact that I think we might not have known were it not for the fact that the Coen brothers nod directly to this film with the title of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This movie is our primer for Preston Sturgis movies because we have others in Miracle Morgan's Creek and Hail the Conquering Hero and all these actors, Betty Hutt and Eddie Bracken, there's film of them talking about their days working and they they just remember these as the best times working with a really true genius. Sturgis really had a hold on this for this short time. I mean, he could almost do no wrong. Miracle on Morgan's Creek, which I'm hoping we get to do sometime, we'll talk in in depth, how many directors in the 1940s could do a film about a woman having an illegitimate birth whose last name is Cockenlocker? Oh, I mean, the, wow! The fact that he got away with well, that. even in this movie, if you, if you really if you really look back to 1941, he's talking about a divorce, and there wasn't a lot of no, yeah, the, this sort he's of he's talking about how he has to get divorce. away from this woman because she's a, a, a deduction on his income tax. Which they get married because uh, the character marries her for a tax for a tax uh, deduction, but then it's obviously completely unhappy and wasn't even a good tax move. Probably and nobody can't... knew anything more uh, about divorce than him because he was married like five times. Yeah. I think. <laughs> You're listening to Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. We're talking about Sullivan's travels. Um, well, I'll say one more thing about Preston's power. There's a very revealing photograph in the documentary on this movie when Hail the Conquering Hero, I think it is, or Miracle at Morgan's Creek. I cannot remember. It's one of those two movies where this train comes into town. And these Marines, it's Hail the Conquering Hero. Yeah, and the Marines awesome. are coming around the bend. This was when he got dressed down for just making one setup. And it's a huge setup. And you look at this thing and you'd swear it's an exterior photo. Um, and then they pull back on the photo, you know, and they show you the soundstage. Those stages are still there, and they're big, but they must have had at least 100 arc lights in there, and they just show you this huge set that they had built. I can only imagine some line producer, his his blood veins sticking out of his neck when they get one set up <laughs> out of this huge, huge set that probably costs a lot of money in those days. And you'll see the scale of this set and this train and everything and on this soundstage somewhere in Hollywood, probably one of Paramount's bigger stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can understand if a director can get that, man, they have pull. They have power. And it's you should look it up in the documentary on this. It's very, very revealing on – how much power this guy had as a director at the time. Seems a little decadent, though, if they have, I mean, it means he has the power, but then you have just for a single scene. And that happens to a lot of these directors who who got to this stage. I mean, it happened to Wells. It happened to Eric von Stroheim. um, You know, that they get overwhelmed with themselves, I think, and they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Well, I mean, look at some of the films today. Look at some of the expenses on some of the films today. And and the, the new Land of the Lost movie, was over $100 million. G.I. Joe, $200 million. Yeah. And this one that James Cameron is now working on, Avatar, is well over $200 million already. You know, And he's been working on it for like three or four years or more. He seems to have a little bit of that. A lot of extras sturgis. like to talk about how they ate their lunch in the water on Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> 
They had to sit in the water and eat their bologna sandwich or something like that. (laughs) Well, it's a perfect film. I think we all agree about that. Gentlemen, we are nearly out of time. So as we begin to wrap up and reflect on this Sullivan's Travels, as usual, film guys, I leave here a little bit smarter than when I walked in. Thank you so much for being along, J. Todd Andrews, and thanks for being here. Always my my (laughs) pleasure. Thank you so much. Mr. George Willeman, we'll meet you back here next time. Thank you, George. Righto. Thank you. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.